Well, hey, good morning to you all. Thanks for joining us for Zoom Church. Hope to see you all uh, at the park after church for our six-year anniversary celebration. As we come into this morning's text, I want you to think about a time in your life where you were forced to be somewhere you didn't want to be with people you didn't really want to be with. Uh, It's possible that some family holidays come to mind, uh, maybe a required work event, uh, maybe even being stuck at home during COVID with roommates you don't like so much. Um, Those are easy examples, but if we took the time and we dug deeper into each of our stories, we would learn that these examples pale in comparison to some of the more painful memories in our story of this kind of feeling where we are being forced to be in a place where we would rather not be with people we'd really rather not be with. And this is something we see in the scriptures, and it's, it's something called exile. And if you look for exile, you will see that it exists throughout the entire story of the Bible. Okay, so if we go back to the beginning, in the garden, after Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God, they are exiled, cast out of the garden into the wilderness. That first exile culminates in the building of a city called Babel. And a man named Abraham lives in Babel, but then God sends him, exiles him from his home to a new land. And that exile story is meant to be more of a positive story of hope. Later in the scriptures, the nation of Israel is exiled from their land to the land of Babylon. So throughout the biblical narrative, exile starts to become symbolic of the human condition. That all of us, though we were made for Eden, are experiencing a kind of exile in our stories. Eugene Peterson in his book, Run With the Horses, reflects on this. He says, Inner experiences of exile take place even if we never move from the street on which we were brought up. We are exiled from the womb and begin life in strange and harsh surroundings. We are exiled from our homes at an early age and find ourselves in the terrifying and demanding world of school. We are exiled from school and have to make our way the best we can in the world of work. We are then exiled from our hometowns and have to find our way in new states and cities. And of course, some stories of exile are much worse even than this list. Rejection, abandonment, abuse, estrangement. J.R.R. Tolkien says, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with the sense of exile. Now this human condition of exile sets the stage for the story of a God who would choose to be exiled from his own home and place himself in a position of weakness in the midst of the political power structures of his day. A God who came and spent most of his time 
with those who were most exiled from society, people living on the margins without a home. His name is Jesus. He gathers those who can sense that they are, as C.S. Lewis says, made for another world. There has to be something more than this. Jesus then shows his followers the way back home. For this reason, Jesus' earliest followers, the church, referred to themselves as followers of the way. The church continues to, to live sort of an exiled existence, wrestling with how to live as followers of the way, the way of humility, the way of weakness, of vulnerability, in the midst of a world where people create false homes based on power, influence, and materialism. Structures that invariably exclude the poor, the outcast, and the exile. So in a sense, the story of the gospel is one big story about exile and the return home. It's a beautiful story that I believe addresses the human condition better than any other story. Now there's another theme besides exile that runs parallel with exile that's, that's interwoven with it. And it has to do with two different ways that people, that human beings respond to exile. So when Adam and Eve sin, God exiles them out of Eden into the wilderness. And then eventually that story culminates in the building of a city with a seven-story ziggurat or tower in it. And that city is called Babel or its more familiar name, Babylon. Babylon represents one way in which people who have been exiled by God respond to that exile. So in this case, the case of Babel, the people say to God, fine, if you are going to exile us, we will build our own home here on earth without you. Genesis chapter 11, verse four, they said to God or to themselves, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. So Babylon is humanistic city building where its inhabitants say, God, we don't need you. The gods and the goods of Babylon will satisfy our every longing. Its pantheon of gods are made in man's image and serve people. The prophets described throughout the Old Testament, they describe Babylon as a city of pride and idolatry. If you study more about ancient Babylon, you'll find that their chief god, his name is Marduk, is a god associated with salvation, with healing, and with wisdom. Okay? If Babylon had a slogan, it would be something like, we've got this, or we are all in this together. Okay, So this is one way to respond to exile, to determine that because God has judged us, we will build our own society without him. We will save ourselves. 
We will heal ourselves and trust our own wisdom apart from him. And so as we, as we learn about Babylon, it's an invitation for us to wonder whether we have determined to live as citizens of Babylon. Have we determined to amass wealth, security, comfort, and worldly wisdom apart from God as they did in Babylon? And to ask ourselves, what are the towers of Babel in our own lives that God looks at and sees as an affront to his rule? Okay, so throughout the scriptures, Babylon comes to represent any kind of systemic rebellion against the Lord. So that even though at the end of the Bible, by then, Babylon has long since been conquered, God still says in Revelation 18.10, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. We see throughout the story that God judges Babylon over and over again. The pattern is that Babylon always begins with tremendous flourishing, a sense that their post-exile plan is working. But then ultimately, it descends into confusion and chaos. Their human salvation project fails. Their healing efforts fall short and their wisdom becomes utter confusion. Let's look in Genesis chapter 11, verses seven through nine. God says, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse nine, therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. The name Babel, or Babylon, ironically means gate of God. So people are saying, we are the golden gateway to the God of our own making. We've got this. And yet, the word Babel eventually comes to mean psychobabble or confusion, right? Like that, the derivative, like our own word for that comes from this word. If you look in the dictionary, the word babble means to talk rapidly and continuously in a foolish, excited, and, or, or in, incomprehensible way, or the sound of people talking simultaneously, a confused babble of voices. Babylon is alive and well today. The earth is filled with people worshiping Marduk, a God made in their image to bring them salvation through prosperity healing through science and technology, and their own earthly wisdom that seems to, by day, lead them further and further into chaos and confusion. David Kinnaman uh, has a book called Faith for Exiles, and in it he writes this. We have adopted a phrase to describe our accelerated complex culture that is marked by phenomenal access profound alienation, and a crisis of authority. Digital Babylon. Ancient Babylon was the pagan but spiritual, hyper-simulated, multicultural, 
imperial crossroads that became the unwilling home of Judean exiles. But digital Babylon is not a physical place. It is the pagan but spiritual, hyper-stimulated, multicultural imperial crossroads that is the virtual home of every person with Wi-Fi, a data plan, or for most of us, both. Kinnaman argues in his book that Babylon is no longer a specific city-state. It is actually all around us, at our fingertips, constantly seeking to colonize and assimilate us into its value system. The Bible tells us that Babylon is not our only option. There is another way to respond to the exile of our existence. And that is through repentance, faith, and obedience. This is the way in which Abraham responded and why he left Babylon at God's behest. When he left, he didn't even know where he was going. All God told him was, Go to the land that I will show you. Abraham's descendants established a new city in a new land, a city that the Bible calls Zion, a city which represents the very dwelling place of God. Psalm 76 2 says, His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place. In Zion. Okay? Salem or Jerusalem comes from the word shalom and is synonymous with Zion, which means parched land. So that inhabitants of Zion are satisfied by God's shalom, their thirst quenched by the Lord, though they live in the dry and weary land. Of exile. So I know that was a really long intro this morning, okay? But exile and Babylon really set the stage for what God has for us this morning in the book of Jeremiah. The question that we're asking in this series, One Kingdom, is what implications does each part of God's story have in our role in the political landscape of our culture. So here's what I believe the Lord wants us for us today. God has sent the people of Zion, that's you and me, into exile in Babylon. For what purpose? So that we might be voices of wisdom in the midst of confusion and chaos. Let me pray for us before we jump in. God, we thank you for your gospel story that you have indeed set us free from exile on this earth. That in you, Jesus, we are truly home. I ask, Lord, that you would give us your wisdom this morning. That you would show us your path. That we might follow the way of Jesus. God, make us a blessing to Babylon while we wait for your return. Give us grace. 
We thank you for your story, Lord. I pray that we would be instructed by it today. It's in your name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll start in verse one. Last week, we were looking at the Exodus. And if you remember in Exodus, God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt and he gives them a new identity. He says, you belong to me like a son belongs to his father. And then God gives them a timeless constitution in the form of 10 commandments. He gives them time bound legislation in the form of case laws that primarily ensure equity and justice for all inhabitants of Israel. The laws, the 10 commandments and the case laws serve as a collective on how the people are to relate to God, to each other and to the creation. Now, this covenant and these set of laws are not supposed to end with them. The telos or the end goal was that God's people would be devoted servants, that they would mediate a kingdom politic for a world without God, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests setting the table for a world to come from all places and feast on the goodness of God, the shalom that was introduced in Eden and that now God's theocracy can reintroduce to the world. But as always, uh, as the story always goes, they fail. Israel breaks the covenant they make with God after the Exodus on Mount Sinai, on Mount Sinai, even though they had said to God, all these things we will do. Okay, they begin practicing the worship of pagan gods. One of those practices included the sacrifice of their own children. Their leadership became corrupt. This resulted in enormous amounts of social injustice so that the most vulnerable in their midst were taken advantage of. Instead of practicing the way of Zion, they practiced the way of Babylon. So God essentially says, if it is Babylon you want, then I will give you Babylon. Okay, God describes Babylon to the nation as a cup of wine, representing all of his judgment towards them that Israel will have to drink from. Jeremiah was a prophet who had prophesied to them for decades, pleading with the nation to turn from their Babylonian ways, warning them that God would judge the nation through Babylonian captivity, and the people hated him for it. Now, years later, all that Jeremiah said would happen has come true. And so he writes them a letter. The people that are, are, have been exiled to Babylon, Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem. He writes them a letter with instructions on what they should do now that they are living in Babylon. That's where we pick it up in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles 
whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So if you notice here in this text, God actually repeats the cultural mandate. He says, cultivate the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. And then he does something interesting. He reframes the covenant that he made with his people at Mount Sinai. Remember, a covenant that was intended to bless the whole world. He says, though you were in exile for your disobedience, you are still called to serve as a devoted people, a holy nation, mediating a kingdom politics, setting tables of hospitality. Why? so that the people of Babylon might experience what? Welfare. And what word does God use for welfare? It's the word shalom. Seek shalom for Babylon. Peace, rest, completeness. See, God always wanted Babylon to hear about his shalom from the people of Israel. That was their job, right? Be set apart. I talked about this last week, that God literally places the nation geographically in the center of the ancient Near East. So that Egypt is to the west and Mesopotamia is to the east, which is where Babylon is. He says, be the kind of nation that the world, the whole world starts to hear about. Be a kind of people that kings and rulers from foreign lands here are flourishing, that there is justice and equity and wealth and prosperity. And let them come from miles to the west and miles to the east to inquire about this. And God wanted it to be that these other nations heard about the shalom of Israel and came to inquire about it. And then when they arrived, the people of God, the people of Zion were to say, these things are only true of our country because God is our king. He is our ruler. It is because of him that we have been blessed. It is not of our own doing. There is no tower in our city in the city of Zion. Instead, we have a temple. And that temple is filled with the very presence, the very glory of God. And all that we have been blessed with is from Yahweh. And so we gladly share it with you. Follow the Lord and you too will be blessed. But they didn't do it. And so God says, I'm sending you into Babylon and you will bless them from there. That is what you and I have been called to. That wherever we are, 
no matter how much we feel like God has abandoned us or exiled us, no matter how frustrated we are with our circumstances, God's purpose for his people is always that we would bring shalom, peace, completeness, and welfare to our city. We are a people marked out for service. That is the only reason that citizens exist in our city. We are called to to offer to San Francisco salvation, healing, and wisdom in the midst of confusion and chaos. So we always need to ask ourselves as a church, would the city of San Francisco miss citizens if we are no longer here? Would there be people in our neighborhoods and in our city that would ask, how will this part of our lives be made complete now that citizens is gone? The reason why Jeremiah is writing these words to them is that they had a very temporary mindset about their time in Babylon. They were hoping that this exile would be very temporary and that they would only be in Babylon in a a short amount of time. Jeremiah knew differently and he says so much because God had told them, he had, God had told Jeremiah, they will be there 70 years. Okay. But the people did not want to believe that. They mostly complained about their experience in Babylon. Eugene Peterson sort of summarizes some of their complaints. They say, why us? Why have you sent us here, God? We can't understand the language. We don't like the food. The manners of the Babylonians are boorish. The schools are substandard. There are no decent places to worship. The plains are barren. The weather is atrociously hot. The temples are polluted with immorality. Everyone speaks with an accent. These grumblings sound all too familiar to me as I think about my own complaints about San Francisco. Um, I often feel like a foreigner in this city as a Christian. Um, I, I've said before, we get no social standing whatsoever, right? No extra points or credibility for being Christians. I have experienced a lot of what I feel is judgment just for being a pastor in relationships I've made here. Um, I will complain about this. I will lament these things. Um, Like the nation of Israel, I complain about the food in our city and how expensive it is. I complain about the lack of spaces available for us to gather and worship. I complain about the weather. I complain about the school system. I complain about the immorality. And man, I just felt really convicted as I read this this week um, about how, how can I seek the welfare of a city that I don't love? God calls his people out of a temporary selfish mindset about Babylon and says, listen, I sent you there. Now in our case, Because of Jesus, we aren't here for discipline and judgment because 
Jesus took upon himself our judgment, okay? He drank completely the cup of judgment for us. So we aren't here for judgment and discipline, but we are here for discipleship. How are we receiving God's invitation for discipleship while we live in exile? Will we bless? Will we serve? Will we consider staying longer than we had planned? In the new digital Babylon, the temptation is just to leave when it gets tough because we can. Maybe the freedom to go wherever we want is actually the new, a new form of exile and we just don't realize it. Part of what made it easy for the people to have a temporary selfish mindset is that they had a bunch of other prophets besides Jeremiah tickling their ears and saying something different to them than what Jeremiah was saying. Look at verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Okay, there were other prophets besides Jeremiah encouraging the people that they would all be set free soon. So their message was, hey, don't worry about settling down. Don't, build, don't feel the pressure to build any relationships with Babylonians. Just kind of do your thing. Keep to yourself. Focus on you. Uh, focus on today. Just live for today because, hey, this will all be over soon. And man, the people love that message. They're like, yes, preach that to me all day long. I am free to be who I want to be, do what I want to do. I don't need to have any ties. I don't need to have a long-term mindset. This will be over soon. I can do as I please, go where I want to go, be who I want to be. I want to tell you something, friends. We, as the people of God, have a long road of exile ahead of us. Followers of Jesus in this country are on a long path of cultural exile. Okay, it, it'll be a long journey. I think probably beyond our lifetimes. If there was ever a time when you could be both Christian and cool, those days are over, all right? When I was in my mid-20s, I used to say, I seriously said this all the time, I want to be the godliest and the coolest person people have ever met, okay? Do you remember me saying that? Yeah. I used to say it all the time. Renee remembers it, okay? And she just said, you're an idiot. So here's what I want to say to you. I said that in my mid-20s. Wait till you're 40. A bunch of you in your mid-20s, you'll be looking back on stuff you said during this season in the same way, all right? Uh, I wanted there to be a way, a way for me to somehow be a Christian and be well-liked, respected, and admired by my friends who didn't follow Jesus. And guess what? All of the Christian leaders that I followed and kind of came up under were feeding me that same line. They were a lot like these prophets. And that type of rhetoric is still very present in the church today. It's branded differently because after all, it is not cool at all anymore to try and be cool, 
okay? It's cool to not be cool and know how to be cool in a way that sort of says, I don't really care about being cool, that's how cool I am, okay? Mark Sayers talks about this in his book, Disappearing Church, really great book, I started reading this week. He talks about how we are living in what he calls a third culture, one that rejects all claims of absolute truth and whose goal it is to deconstruct anything sacred. And because of that, there's a pressure that's causing many Christians to just bail on their faith altogether because we can't stand up underneath this pressure. Look what he says. The temptation of this discomfort between Orthodox Christian faith and the civil religion of the third culture is to do what it takes for the pressure to go away. All the believer must do is ease up on the beliefs that grade against contemporary sensibilities. Tweak your view on sexuality to be more embracing of today's mood or move from a particularist view of Jesus to a universalist one and you are warmly embraced into the fold. Thus, for many Christians raised with the ethic of relevance, approving to the world that Christians can both be believers and carry the contemporary currency of cool, the new pressure presented by an intolerant tolerance proves too much. Some compartmentalize their beliefs into an orthodox secularist mashup, and others simply disappear into the cold embrace of secularity. I think that is a prophetic word for this moment in Christianity. And man, I worry about this a lot. I worry about you and your faith. I worry about how the pressure of this cultural moment is sitting on you. I worry that you are being colonized by Babylon and you don't even know it. That you think that God is trying to oppress you with his word, with his timeless truth, and that it is Babylon that offers you freedom when in fact it is just the opposite of that. And I worry about the, Christ, the other Christians that you know, and even pastors who are affirming your Babylonian assimilation without even knowing it and even without intending to. I worry because I love you. I want you to be wise, to be sober-minded, to in your skepticism, which the Babylonian culture is encouraging you to have, that as you are skeptical and deconstructing, that you would save enough of that skepticism and deconstruction for yourself and recognize you don't know everything and you have enormous blind spots. I pray, church, that you would recognize the allure of Babylon. It wants you for itself. Its promises of flourishing end in chaos and confusion. There will come a moment, I don't know when, when Babylon will be deeply lost and will need our wise voices in the midst of their chaos and confusion. Will we be ready to answer that call? There is a great story of exiles living in Babylon in the book of Daniel. I wish I had the time to read more of Daniel's story to talk more about it today. So I'm just going to summarize a particular instance. 
Daniel and some of his friends were some of the best and brightest minds in all of Israel. And so they were among those who, whom King Nebuchadnezzar had brought to Babylon and sort of put in his council of wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to assimilate Israel into Babylonian culture, to colonize them, to make them more Babylonian than they were Hebrew. But Daniel and his friends were among those who refused to be colonized. So they were trying to obey um, what uh, Jeremiah's calling had been on them to seek the good and welfare of the city. They had access to Jeremiah's words and they were trying to live this out. They studied the culture. They built relationships. They lived among them with a long-term mindset. Now God, when Daniel shows up on the scene, God is in the process of humbling Babylon in the form of humbling Nebuchadnezzar and his political advisors. He did what he always does when he allows their pride and self-salvation project to lead to confusion. So what happens is Nebuchadnezzar began to have these dreams that are tormenting him. He could not interpret them and none of his magicians could interpret them either. And so Nebuchadnezzar is like anxious and confused and angry and frustrated. And so his plan is to kill all of his advisors and that included Daniel and his friends. So Daniel goes before the Lord, recognizing Yahweh as the source of wisdom and prays for an interpretation so that he might spare not only his own life and the life of his friends, but also of all the other Babylonian advisors that he had come to love and respect and build relationships with. So I want us to look at Daniel's prayer and ask ourselves whether our prayers are like his for our city, state, and our country. Daniel 2, verses 20 through 23. Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Brothers and sisters, we, we're already seeing glimpses of it, but there will come a day when Babylon descends into utter chaos and confusion. There, that's already happening. You're already seeing people saying like, man, I just don't know what to believe anymore. I don't even know what to think anymore. And so will we be ready for that moment? Will we be a people devoted to Yahweh, citizens of Zion, seeking the wisdom of the Lord so that those around us, when all chaos has ensued, will think of us and seek us out for God's wisdom. Daniel had built a reputation for his wisdom. That is the reputation that God wants us to have. And so very quickly, how do we do this? What does it look like for us to live as a people of wisdom? Uh, Historian Arnold Toynbee 
says that what we need to do is we need to operate in what he calls a creative minority. And so Mark Sayers, who has studied Toynbee, in his book sort of explains this term and what it means. He says, creative minorities or the wise people of God find themselves withdrawn and distant from what they know and find comfort in. This distance enables them to see the myths and blind spots of their own culture, to reject these myths and find a greater dependency in God. This dependency on a source of power and truth outside of the dominant culture leads creative minorities to refresh and reinvigorate ailing cultures. And then he says this, Toynbee noted that creative minorities are formed by this tension, which he labeled withdraw return, describing the way that minorities must withdraw from their culture to return with healing truth. Toynbee noted that Jesus' ministry and especially his death and resurrection was the ultimate example of withdraw return. The gospel invites us into the process of withdrawal return to place everything at the foot of the cross, to withdraw into the presence of God, submitting ourselves to his lordship, repenting of the ways in which we have rebelled. We then emerged washed by grace as a new creation, charged to bring the healing truth of the gospel to the nations. Man, I love that. It's, I think it's such a beautiful picture of that withdraw, return. What does that look like for us? It looks like spiritual disciplines and practices, retreats, spiritual retreats where we get away from the culture, solitude. It requires fasting, fasting from the food our culture eats, the drinks our culture drinks, the technology that our culture relies upon, the social media that our our culture is addicted to, and many other things. So I believe in order to be wise, to be able to offer welfare to our city, we need to withdraw and return like a creative minority, the wise people of God. Another thing that we need to do is receive the limits of our individuality. You probably, as we go into this election, you start thinking about this, you probably feel really overwhelmed by all of it. How do I read enough books and articles How do I listen to enough podcasts, spend enough time in prayer, learn enough, understand enough, all while trying to work and live and exist in a city that is so busy, so demanding, a city where I'm already a cultural minority as a Christian? Like, what can I even do? And the answer is, none of us can do anything by ourselves. We can do nothing alone, and God does not want us to do it alone. We are in desperate need of one another. You and I are not Daniel. In fact, there is a better Daniel, Jesus. He is the true embodiment of wisdom. And he even offers Babylon far more than Daniel could. And this person, Jesus, is alive in us. He says the church is his body, a collective of people who together, not separately, put the manifold wisdom of God on display. It is us together that make up the wisdom of God, none of us on our own.
James Skillen writes this. He says, The first thing to say about the potentially burdensome task of citizenship, therefore, is this. Don't think of it as an individual vocation. Political life is more a matter of what we do than of what you or I do. Of course, each of us bears responsibility, but exercising that responsibility meaningfully requires teamwork, a communal effort. This is already happening in some small ways in our church, and I would love to see more of it. This last Monday, a couple of us got together to discuss the confessions that we've been going through about racial injustice in our country. And man, there was amazing dialogue, even good, some good pushback and disagreement, some challenge there. When it comes to politics, and as we enter into this next season, we need differing voices at the table. I want citizens to be a church where we can disagree on certain aspects of political life in our country, but agree on Jesus and that he is enough to keep us unified. And man, that right there sets us apart from the culture. The church may end up being one of the very last institutions left that refuses to cancel each other because we receive every disagreement someone has with us as a sign of intentional aggression. Okay, If you want to witness the descent of our culture into chaos and confusion, just look around at the rhetoric and the way people are coming at their political views. Okay? If you want to see this like firsthand, I strongly recommend you read a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, and you will see an unbelievable amount of chaos and confusion where there is hatred, where there is disagreement in a way that is so hostile. So in order to be the manifold wisdom of God, we need to withdraw and return not be assimilated or colonized by the Babylonian mindset. And we need to get, gather together and serve each other with our gifts, utilize each other's gifts, leverage each other's gifts, so that together we might have good answers for a world descending into chaos and confusion. I want to end with this scripture from Hebrews chapter 12 that I find so encouraging in the midst of this topic. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are all enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the rich beauty of your word and your story. God, I pray that we would be citizens of Zion, that we would refuse to be colonized by a Babylonian mindset. And I pray, God, that your wisdom would come through and shine through this body of believers at Citizens Church to our city as it descends into chaos and confusion, as the promise of liberal progress is not being kept and people are increasingly wondering 
where to turn, where to look for goodness, for shalom, for welfare, that we would come to their minds, that we would be that type of people. God, help us. We desperately need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.